Greetings from the Commonwealth of Kwanzaa Society's talk show. This show has been created to bring to light the need for a centralized culture in the African-American community and to show how many of the struggles in the black community are rooted in the lack of a centralized African-based culture in the black race as it exists in Western Hemisphere, in the Western Hemisphere, and Western civilization in general. My name is Clarence Jones, your host today, and I will use my show to make a case for using the fall holiday of Kwanzaa as a platform for the many different types of black people to gather around. Uh, Kwanzaa would be taken and turned into a year-round system instead of a once-a-year holiday. And so oh, and the obvious million-dollar question is why Kwanzaa? Why did I choose Kwanzaa to use as this, this tool and this platform? Absolutely realistic question, credible question. Uh, why Kwanzaa? Kwanzaa is African-based, is from Africa, is of Africa, but not specific to a particular tribe of Africa. So it is inclusive to all African people. Kwanzaa is a first fruit harvest celebration that does not infringe upon religion, nationality, geography, or ethnicity. This is key because the African people need an ancestral-based system, a system that is inherently theirs, inherently African, but all different types of black people can rally around, which would help lead to better camaraderie, more familiarity, which would lead to better continuity, more camaraderie again, which would lead to an enhanced ability uh, to organize, coordinate, and orchestrate as one force. And, of course, all of these processes together are what is called unity. All those things have to work together to call itself unity. Unity is a key ingredient that has been lacking in the black population and has been at the root of many of its struggles, uh, a root problem um, that you can see at, the, at the, the, the bottom line to many of its struggles and challenges, and been a major impediment to its ability to deal with adversity, struggle, again, to deal with all those things as one force. So I'm going to use my show to make a case for the need of a central culture in the black population, and for the practicality of using Kwanzaa, the holiday of Kwanzaa, as that cultural platform and turning it into a year-round system. I'm going to cite history, my personal life as a pro, uh, pro, former pro athlete, current events, books I've read, um, and illustrations of that need for a central culture in the black population. And so and it, I'm excited about today's show because I'm bringing a new book. Uh, I'm bringing two things. I did it the last time a little bit, but today we're going to talk about specific principles of Kwanzaa. We're going to talk about the Ujama, which is cooperative work and responsibility. I always read that on this day, which is Wednesday. I want to spread the Ngoza Soba out throughout the week. So today's Wednesday, um, and so Thursday we, we would be celebrating Ujama, cooperative economics. Friday would be um, Nia finding your purpose, uh, and then Saturday, Kumba, creativity, Sunday, um, Imani, your faith, and then Monday would be, I would do Umoja, unity, Tuesdays, Kujakajila, self-determination. So all those principles are principles of Kwanzaa, they're called the Ingos of Soba, that if, you just think, if thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people 
were reading these things every day and thinking about them, it would kind of put us all on the same page. It would probably, it would put us, it's almost like a team with a playbook. And the playbook giving a similar platform of ideology. So everyone would be thinking, like today, everyone should be thinking about cooperative work and responsibility. What can I do for my community, uh, my American community, my family, my black community? So that's a great thing. Um, and I think in a great way, Kwanzaa can be used, utilized year-round, not just on the holidays. Second thing I want to do, uh, talk about the book. I'm going to get into the book. I'm excited about this book. We touched a little bit on it before. Black Men, Obsolete, Single, Dangerous, The African-American Family in Tradition. This is a book I read, I think, in 1993. I'm pretty sure I read it in the 90s. It's amazing how relevant this book is today. And also, amazingly enough, I think a lot of the stuff that I've been thinking about the last 20 years, absolutely I've been impacted by this book and reading it. And matter of fact, this is the book that said, uh, as long as the black community, uh, and I've only gotten like three pages of reading or four or five pages of reading in the book, and I've already hit on stuff I want to talk about. But in this book, he says, you know, uh, as a race, the race that's led by professional athletes, entertainers, and, and preachers will always be second place to other ethnic groups and races and countries that are led by generals politicians, um, businessmen, investors, and, and leaders of such, and police chiefs. And so that is a major difference. That's a major impediment that must change. And so we have to work towards that. So those are the things I'm going to get into today. Um, we're going to first talk, as I usually talk about, I'm saying culture is something that's lacking in the black race. Culture is something that has to be addressed and creating a central culture is a paramount importance for our existence. The question then becomes, what is culture? Why is it important? And so we get right into culture gives us, it is a playbook for an ethnic group. It is a playbook for a, any type of team, corporation, uh, country, or whatever. Culture does that. Um, culture is, uh, culture, the, the New England Patriots have a culture. Their culture is about being physical, physical football play, and everybody being on the same page. Another thing that's part of the, the New England Patriot culture is the strong accountability tree. The accountability tree means within this organization, everyone is accountable, everyone knows they're accountable, everyone feels accountable. That's part of the New England Patriot culture. So a culture is something that can, is not necessarily the same on every team and every organization, and, and it's learned. So, um, so the culture is so c culture is the playbook for the race uh, or nation or country. It is a coming together of shared values and beliefs, customs, education, and acquiring symbols. Culture must be learned. It is not. You're not born with a culture. You have to figure that culture out as you, you know, as you move along. As a football player, I was a very technical football player. I wasn't, my lower body was not that strong, so I couldn't physically overpower you, but I was strong in my upper body. So that forced me to be a very 
technique-oriented player and finesse player. But to be honest, my ideology that I is in regards to football is very physical-oriented. So if I coach the team, my team would not be like me. They would not be technical. I would teach them technique, but I would want them to be very physical, to come off the ball, to be to 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 outman, to out tough, the to out strength the people in front of them. That would be our goal. We would use technique within that, but our main mentality would be to be physical. Now, even though I was not that type of player because of um, weaknesses in my physical stature. My ideology in my belief system was one way. It was physical, tough, uh, a tough mentality, because that's the culture and ideology I've been exposed to in high school, college, and pro. So culture is a big determinant to how people think, how they approach life, their worldview, and the direction they want to go. And it must be learned, as it said. Culture is... um, Culture can be the economic and strategic planning for a race or ethnic group. It helps in the acquisition business. It, it helps uh, in in real estate, uh, educating. Uh, uh, culture can culture can aim a, a race of people towards getting high paid paying jobs because the culture emphasizes education and acquiring a great education. And so that's why you have other way areas where in the same core areas. One ethnic group comes out of this area, and they're usually doctors, lawyers, and dentists, and out of the same area of, you know, low income or working class, you have uh, policemen, you know, factory workers, tradesmen. All that is culture. They have a different value system that, that gears their kids towards, you know, getting high-paying jobs with the emphasis on education. And even if they're not smart, their culture compels them to find ways, you know, that's the value system. Maybe that group, group, maybe the ethnic group that has the doctors, lawyers, and dentists on the weekend, they're reading and doing extra things for school if their kids are lagging behind. And the other ethnic group doesn't do that. Maybe they're into sports and, and what have you. So culture impacts that. Culture is transporting a history of a race. Uh, it's identity, who we are relative to everyone else. We are the chosen people. Some people call themselves that. Ethnic groups, uh, your, your culture does that. Culture, uh, uh, culture is ethnic, economic, political, social, psychological, spiritual, geographical. It is a, it is a economic, political, social, and, and spiritual rallying point for any ethnic group. So that means when, when we're lagging in this area, the platform, any ethnic group, if you're lagging in a particular area, the platform that they gather around to say, we need to change this, we need to improve that, is culture. Critical point. Uh, culture is a template for a race. Without it, it cannot exist or call, uh, or or as a cooperative. You know, basically, without a culture, an ethnic group cannot exist as a cooperative entity. So... Culture is the spirit of a race, and we said, kind of said this. It teaches the race love. It teaches the race how to educate one another. It teaches, the, it teaches culture teaches the race to um, challenge each other, to check each other. It gives rules 
and regulations, um, how to chastise each other, how to confront each other, uh, it, how to reward. It creates family rules. Uh, it, culture helps you to take care of the old. It's um, how to raise children, how to project management. Culture is big in that. Uh, so it is the strategic planning. You cannot, uh, you cannot be safe. You cannot create your own security without some type of unity and rallying point, and culture does that. And there are certain things that only culture can do. Only culture can give you a serviceable dynamic between genders. Only culture can give you, can organize you around economics, the group, ethnic group. Only culture can properly dispute. Life-saving, uh, uh, I like this because I think um, the book gets into it as well. Um, I think it's Doc in the, the name. I don't think I said the, the author's name. Uh, maybe because I forget his name or it's hard to pronounce. It's Haki R. Ma Madhubuti. And Dr. Haki's book talks about culture is big as far as dealing with history and misunderstanding and mistakes. So if you're an ethnic group and you've experienced traumatic um, historical events in the past, culture is the thing that helps that group come together and say, okay, we're not going to do this again. We were stupid. We made this decision. We were vulnerable, and we paid a price for that. Or we're going to, uh, we're going to be more proactive in our own destiny. We were, we were relying on other people, and that didn't pan out for us. Uh, when the Irish came to uh, America, a lot of them in the 1850s, coming from the Irish potato famine, the British owned the land that their potatoes were on. And so, and, and what people don't realize, when I, I remember hearing about it in school, and, you know, the Irish potato famine, I just thought it was a name that they gave to it, that, you know, everything went in famine and they just didn't have food and they were suffering from that standpoint, it was a factual famine of potatoes. Potatoes were the food of the, the poor in Ireland, and the Irish were poor. The Irish did not own the land. The British usually, the landowners were British. So what ended up happening was the food would be taken, what food was growing in Ireland was literally taken out by force of arms with people with guns and what have you. So the Irish saw food being taken off of their land while they were starving. There were people that died and their insides or their mouths were green because they were eating grass and what have you. So those Irish that lived through that Irish potato famine then lived through the transition, the forced migration to the United States. When they got to the United States, they had one thing on their mind, which was power. And so they had to have power that they controlled and what they, the Irish did in the inner cities, in, in Boston, in New York City, Philadelphia, wherever, and even in New Orleans, they became uh, stewards of the machine politics, uh, party politics, the, the political machines that were considered corrupt and uh, of the turn of the century, uh, you know, 1900s and what have you. Uh, those are the, the, they became the policemen and firemen. And you couldn't become a policeman if you didn't pay a certain amount of money. And to this day, if a policeman or fireman die in the line of duty, 
they get um, they have Irish uh, horns, you know, from the uh, from because at the turn at the turn of the century, 1900s, if you were not Irish, you could not really you really could not be a fireman or a policeman. But that was from the Irish learning from the past of not being able to control the land or the politics around the land, not having power, not having collective power. When they became Americans and they got to America, America and they survived the transportation, the forced migration, the first thing they wanted to do was to have power that they controlled. So a, a culture is the thing that allows someone to do that. It is the platform that gives the race that place to make that decision, to, to make that decision to save their own lives. And so this is why uh, culture, this is what culture is, why it's so important, and um, why it's a critical point that's been missing. And, and so we, I also now want to take a look at, and, and again, we're going to look at uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Heike's book, Black Men, Obsolete, Single, and Dangerous Today, but I, I still want to get into my normal uh, platform, my normal you know, my, my normal schedule because I think this stuff is important because we're trying to understand why it's important, why culture is important, who has it helped and who has it helped, who has it hurt. Um, like we haven't talked about how culture has helped Jewish people. We'll do that briefly. And the we'll look at, again, a central culture in the Jewish population, and that's clearly been an asset for them in spite of their many challenges historically. This ethnic group has been consistently persecuted throughout the ages. Going back to the Middle Ages, um, they were used, the Jews were used as tax collectors and representatives of the feudal lords and the kings. Uh, They were the economic overseers in Eastern Europe, Ukraine, uh, for the feudal, feudal uh, for feudal lords, uh, the, a lot of resistance and jealousy and fear and anxiety um, developed around them. They were alienated because they were kind of foreign people in this new in this land that already had other other peasants in it. They were vassals of the kings and lords. They were not trusted, and so violence eventually developed against them. It, it, it was basically created. Not created. I don't think, I don't know if it was purposely created, but violence, uh, the anxiety, mistrust, and dislike erupted into violent um, issues of attacks on the Jews, and they were called pogroms. And pogroms began in Europe, and basically a pogrom is a lynching of Jews. So groups of peasants would rally up and start finding Jews. They would kill them, lynch them. They would burn down their homes. Uh, they made you an individual. They made you whole families, and they would be chased out of their homes. So that was that was part of European existence for Jews for quite some time, and they're called pogroms. Uh, and the Jews were not trusted because they were not willing to assimilate, and um, that was something that was used against them. So they had laws enacted against them that uh, kept them. They were so distrusted. They were 
not allowed to own land. Jews were not allowed to vote. Uh, they were, you were not allowed to marry Jews. Uh, you, they were, I think I said they weren't allowed to own land. And, and now they were not agrarian, which is amazing. Uh, they were not agrarian anyway because they were not permitted to own land. So they, they tended to be, they were forced to become the middlemen. They were forced to become the tradesmen. They were forced, forced to become brokers. They were very good. They became very good at being brokers. And brokers help create wealth because they're putting um, facets of economics together. And so they became proficient at this, and they became proficient wealth creators. Now, the interesting thing about it, the Jews, they became so proficient at creating wealth and helping the kingdom, they now remind you, they're still mistrusted and disliked by the peasantry, by the, 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 the modern, you know, the vast majority of the people in the Middle Ages in the feudal, in the feudal world. So uh, at some point, it became, they became a, a liability to the king, so they were, they were just, you know, they were just dismissed. They were told to leave and, and, and uh, exiled out. The Jews would leave, but then they were so good at economics, when they left, there was a void, and the, the kings would now have economic downturn. So then the Jews were asked to come back. <laughs> crazy, crazy. So this is kind of how their life has been. They, they, all, they've been, they've been, there are a whole bunch of challenges they had to go through over the years. And um, they also were good at the economics. When they left, they were forced to come back because then there was the economic downturn, but they, again, they were still distrusted by everyone around them. So what helped them was the fact that since they all were people who weren't going to assimilate in their cultures and the ecosystems that they reside, wherever they were around the world, so when they were chased out of particular areas, they went, they dispersed around the world. Well, they became a natural network for doing business with who? Each other, because they were in different countries around globally, around the world. And, and equally, they were equally disliked in those new areas they were in, and they didn't assimilate well. So the natural network, the natural diaspora that the Jews created became an extremely effective economic instrument for them. And it became an instrument for them and whoever they did business with. So now the Jew is a very important to lords, to kings, to businessmen because of their network. So in this case, we see how a centralized culture uh, was a very strong instrument for Jews, uh, an extremely helpful instrument, a, a helpful tool uh, for their own survival, even in instances where people were antagonizing them. So it wasn't, it, there were in instance, instances throughout history where people were literally not trying to help them if anything felt like they had too much felt like they were too greedy and didn't want them to be successful. And, and that became dangerous for them. And so in those, in those areas, they still were able to thrive. And another thing that I think is amazing, and I still think, I absolutely believe this is from a centralized culture, 
and the ability to become a team. They're historically non-agrarian. As we said, they weren't permitted to own land. They were the middlemen. Uh, their safety, they were always just out in the, out in the open, out in the, in the country, in the feudal areas, they were isolated. You know, so a pogrom could start and no one could really help them. No one would even know about it, maybe. And so the whole family might get killed from a pogrom, not even just the man, but the whole family. So the safest places for them were really in the urban areas, in and around the kingdom and the king. That was their safest place to be, to do their haberdashery and to do their middleman work, be it, be it banking or in, in other ways. So these are historically non-agrarian things, uh, people, that when they started the state of Israel, that was, they had kibbutzes all over Israel. So Israel was really started with them working the land. The first thing that happened in Israel was the land was worked by the people, and they tried to subsist off of the land. This is not their history, but because they were so strong with their unity, and they had that central culture, they had the ability. Remember what, what we talked about, culture has the ability to help correct mistakes. And Dr. Haki talked about it in his book. It, it, it helps you win, it helps you celebrate your culture, but it also helps you come together and say, look, we did this wrong, or look, this is something new we're going to have to do. We all have to do this collectively. Culture does that. A, a particularly a strong central culture can definitely help in that fashion. And so this is definitely uh, where central culture has been a, a major asset to the Jewish race. Now we're going to move on. Uh, we see where central culture has been helpful to the Jewish race, we absolutely have to look at ourselves, and, and there are other races too, but right now we're talking about Kwanzaa and how it can help black people. So we'll look now at Kwanzaa and how, well, we're not going to look at Kwanzaa, we'll look at how the black community of the black race is not having a central culture has been an impediment for it, for the black community, for the black race, and been an asset for people who wanted to take advantage of it, okay? Uh, black civilization. The great author, Chancel Williams, wrote in his book, The Destruction of Black Civilization, that the West African population uh, who, who occupied that area were, in fact, refugees of East Africa, where they built their own uh, singular society and civilization with an unknown centralized language. I think that's critical. Having one language over there means they have the ability to communicate with each other and, and work with each other, uh, you know, indefinitely. And to, to have multiple languages means multiple different cultures, means multiple different people. That inhibit, that, inhibit, that really, that's an impediment of coming together when there's any type of external threat. So having that central language is a big, big asset to that race of Africans in East Africa. They lost that when they went to West Africa. Because of, because of natural disaster and the immigration of, Arab, of the Arab populations from Asia Minor, they began migrating across the continent to the western portion of the, of the continent. As this happened, they began to split up 
as we talked about, going in different directions, going to different parts of West Africa, forming their own tribes with their own tribal languages and cultures. So again, with one African country having up to 100 tribes and having no central state, um, uh, the European incursion was unchecked. And instead of unity uh, and uniting to deal with the common threat posed by the region uh, because of the slave uh, industry beginning, as the slave industry began, slave trading industry began kicking up and becoming profitable, they not only they were, were they not unable, not only were they unable to come together to prevent this attack and to prevent these incursions, they actually began making war on each other uh, to have slaves to trade in that slave trade. So they literally helped the Europeans by making war on their neighbors, beating their neighbors, taking them slaves, and giving them to the Europeans. And so, and, and again, we talked about this before. I think I've mentioned this. So having another language and having another culture is essentially being a separate people. And I've spoken to other Africans directly, and they confirmed it. Like, if, I, if there's a tribe that lives up the block from me, like 10 miles, 5 miles, or even 1 mile, but they're another tribe, they have another language, they have another religion, do you consider them another ethnic group, another race? He said, absolutely, they are another race. And so when you look at Africa having 100 tribes in one country, that's essentially having 100 countries within one country. That makes it very vulnerable to anyone who wants to take advantage because all they have to do is systematically make war on each country, you know, each, each small country, and no one's going to do anything. Matter of fact, you may get other, which is what the white man did, they got other countries, other Africans to make war on their neighbors. And so that was an act, not having a central culture was an asset to European incursion. Factually, I just learned this, and I think I've mentioned this before, but it's, you know, it's a, a, always a great point to come back to. Not only did the Europeans, uh, the, 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 central, the lack of a central culture help the Europeans the Europeans physically could not enter too far into Africa. I knew, or just like the European was brought diseases that killed the Indians, the African diseases literally killed the white man. He could only go so far into Africa. Uh, I knew about malaria, but there was also malaria and yellow fever. And they could not survive. In the 1600s, 1700s, a white man could not survive too long in Africa. Uh, 10 miles in, maybe even a mile in. The, the diseases literally would kill him. And so um, that that's really unfortunate because that's then he absolutely needed the assistance of internal African tribal people to help assist him in his slave trade, which they did. So this is a uh, unfortunate consequence of that. Um, and so the the consequences of the black man not needing to build his own civilizations and and, and and countries. So once the black man fled the area where, in which he dominated, when when he left East Africa, you know, black technology education was, if not the top, or one of the top in the world. 
once he migrated, he became, basically, he became refugees, and he became, you know, fragmented um, tribal refugees. No nation. No nation in which an attack on one is an attack on the other. You know, na no nation in which we have to maintain this area for thousands upon thousands of miles. We have to be organized as one people. We have to have one playbook to help us. We have to educate ourselves. You know, if you if you are one African race or, or, or a couple of African races and you have to maintain West Africa, that's just not a couple of miles. That's thousands upon thousands of miles. That now means the ecosystem, you affect that. What, are you cleaning the water? Are you, are, you, are you hunting too much? Are there enough fish to fish? Uh, are, you, are you protected against the weather? If the weather turns bad, can we migrate to other parts of this region? So having a little, a couple of acres is not the same as having control and, and having to maintain a region. And so with the black man losing that, there are consequences of that. There are consequences for not having to maintain your own civilizations and societies and nations. And with the reality of if you did have to maintain these things, it affects how your men are reared, how your women are reared, how you interact with each other. Your value system, which we see, uh, is lacking with us. Uh, your, how you go about building, how you go about educating, how you go about passing down important information. You know, if, if, you're in, if you're one nation in West Africa and you fish up all the fish, how to keep from doing that is going to pass down from generations. So a couple of generations, you're going to know how to fish without fishing too much. You're going to know how to hunt without hunting too much. Or maybe we don't need to be having too many babies. All these are executive decisions and administrative decisions that people that have their own nations have to learn how to do. And not only do they have to learn how to do it, they have, it becomes part of who they are because they're doing it for thousands of years. When you are disconnected from that, there is an absolute consequence, uh, in, in some cases maybe irrevocable, but definitely a consequence, I hope not irrevocable, but definitely a consequence of not being in that position. The consequences of the black man not needing to build and maintain his own civilizations and societies, uh, has, he has become remedial in the area of military science, power creation, and acquisition. Um, right off the bat, before we get into anything, it's military science. We just had a kid in Wisconsin kill two protesters. So we're talking about history, but now we're going to today and how the, the lack of, of African civilization and the black man not having to uh, build his own civilization um, has consequences. And they're pretty, they're not consequences last year or 10 years ago or 100 years ago. They're consequences right now. So there was a, a big protest over police shooting in Wisconsin. I don't know all the details. I know that 15 year old came to the, um, the protest from another state and gunned down two people. And it was a big issue and you know, guns on both sides. It was definitely a dangerous, unfortunate occurrence. Um, but the, the strangest thing about that is it's actually not strange. It's consistent with what we talk about as far as military science and controlling your ecosystem. 
I I stopped watching. Uh, well, I never really did watch because uh, I, I already knew what the out- outcome was. You know, property rights uh, will always be subservient to um, uh, property rights will always be superior to human rights in an economic capitalist society. Bottom line. And so this issue was obviously you know you felt racial, but there was definitely property property rights uh, is a part of an issue of people being fearful of people messing with their property and those people being on the same page, uh, having congruency between them. And so it, it, I just, I won't, I, I can't, I'll never forget the judge talking to the kid that shot two people, making sure, treat them so nicely. Now, may you make sure these are your rights. We want to make sure you, we're taking care of you. You're not being abused. And it, it, it just, it was so obvious that they were, they were far more concerned about this guy's rights and his well-being than the people he had shot. Um, that's military science because that judge was elected. That a judge was elected by a group of people. That judge was elected by a group of people who have an agenda. That, led, that judge was elected by people, a group of people that want to protect their property. And so the protesters are not perceived as people with property. The people who came from out of state, who really shouldn't have been there, but still were there to protect property, so they're trying to protect theirs. This is military science. This is, this is why, as black people, which clearly is not important to black people, voting, not only voting, putting your own people in position so that they can do the right thing and make sure they protect you and your interests and your safety. And so military science is the thing that is lacking in black people, and particularly the black male. And this is not having to run and maintain your own civilization is why that is a reality. Um, making, and of course, it makes them vulnerable to predatory ethnic groups and a marginal ally at best. The so-called black community is quick to antagonize each other, eliminate each other, disrespect one another, with an emphasis on not being disrespected. And, of course, this ecosystem um, of hostile discontinuity, I, it manifests itself in what I call black zombie nation. And um, so that's what we're talking about, and that's the consequences of uh, not being where we should be as an ethnic group. Now, this is cool. I can get into the book of Dr. Heike, Black Men, Obsolete, Single, and Dangerous, The African-American Family in Transition, because he talks about a lot of this stuff, and it's actually pretty cool. So we're going to the beginning part of this book on page, mm, hopefully I didn't read this before. There's so many good things, and he literally talks about culture. So, um... We're going to read, I'm going to read page three. We're, corner, we're corners made for black men to stand on. Okay. And so I'm going to read this passage. The larger question is what do people do when the social, political, and economic conditions under which they live are not only designed to limit their intellectual and material development, but are structured ultimately to kill them? Every book uh, every day, books, magazines, and newspaper articles are published with the information detailing the decline of the black family, 
the crisis of black teenage pregnancy, the vanishing black male, brothers on and on. And much of the material published, the information is either rehashed, sociolo uh, sociological theories, excerpts from recent PhD theses, or articles from young hotshot reporters looking for front page bylines. Black misery, uh, black misery has always made good copy, yet there's, there is much missing in this approach. There are answers, uh, there are answers, lies, music, and many complexities in the lives of African Americans. However, the great majority of our people are not able to hear the survival song. Black people are not listening to the correct songs and their dance is increasingly becoming that of a beginner willing to accept solutions from the false musicians. In it, it is not that African people are inherently neglect, negligent in their search for life-giving and life-serving answers. I think they are. I disagree with that. Um, the problem is the context and content of the answers that are presented. Social political theory is passed off as objective wisdom, as worldview, uh, as the worldview of Euro-Americans permeates black life in ways that inhibit the majority of blacks from functioning in their own best interest. Now, this is amazing. I, hopefully, I didn't read this before, but if I did, it's too important not to rehash it. All he, all Dr. Hockey is saying here is. We don't learn, we haven't learned to think for ourselves, basically Kuzagagila, love ourselves, think for ourselves. That's all this passage is saying. We think about ourselves within the worldview of others. So having a, a BMW is important to a black man. Uh, having a Mercedes is important to a black man. But not owning, owning, owning your own home is important, but that, that having that accoutrement of the visual Prosperity is more important, and not controlling our destiny, controlling our ecosystem. That is, it just doesn't. It doesn't have the same value with black men as it does with others, and you can see it. And when he's talking about social political theories, um, it's it passed off as objective wisdom. That's really getting into quantum. He's saying, what, what, uh, what do we do? What do we think about? How, why do we not think in a way that's consistent with how black people have thought and lived for thousands of years? You've got to realize, for you know, 5,000 years ago, the black man ran and created his own societies, nations, and civilizations. So he had a way of thinking to do that successfully. And he, what the writer is saying here is, it's clear that he does not have that now. And of course, the black man operates in somebody else's civilization, and he helps them build their civilization. And there's, of course, what I just read, there's a consequence of that. And I think it's also, I think ultimately it's bad for everyone, because like I said before, he's not a good ally. He really is not. He does not know how to challenge his foes. He does not, how to, he does not know how to be a proper ally because he's, he doesn't know how to tell them how to uh, be a good ally to him. I, I, I hear, uh, yeah, and this is, I was thinking about this this week. People talk about uh, President Biden is not that popular. His approval ratings dropped and what have you. And, oh, and, and, you know, 
maybe like the midterm elections have kind of a lot that the Democrats are going to lose houses in the in the Senate in the Congress because they're not happy with Joe Biden. Uh, and, and it's like that's indicative of black zombie nation because what is your other option? What do you think Donald Trump would have done better for you? And and also, president the, the president is in an environment that's completely hostile to his interests, in which the people who have so much influence are not really with him. They're not Democrats like him. So so under that. Narrative, people are not going to vote? Really? You're just helping the other side. You're just helping the people that don't want to help you. You know, so you may not be happy with President Biden not being able to do things perfectly, but the black race and the black community should understand the urgency in voting, the urgency of supporting him in whatever way we can, even if he's not the perfect candidate for us. To be honest, everyone likes Bernie Sanders anyway. But we also know Bernie Bernie is as great a candidate as Bernie Sanders was. He would kill a maid for Republicans to beat because he's looked, he's looked at as a socialist. So Joe Biden, President Biden, was a moderate Democrat that wanted to do some good things. He's meeting a lot of resistance, but that resistance is from the lack of voter participation for the last five, ten years in the black community that's allowed these people, these property-focused um, uh, people, to get into Congress to protect their property. So now you're going to be mad at President Biden because he can't do as much as you want him to do, and you're not, and you may not vote in the election. You know, just give it to him. So this is the problem that the black race and the black man has always presented by not creating and having his own civilization. He is a marginal ally at best because he don't understand the old games, like looking at the board, only looking at one side. So this is definitely a problem. Dr. Hati then moves on, same page, page three, cultural absolutions. I wonder what this means. But it's something regarding, uh, regarding culture uh, Dr. Hati talks about. And so at some point we're going to talk about today in Kwanzaa. Uh, I, we may only get to this point, and then I'm going to move on to Kwanzaa. Okay. There are certain – okay, this is doc, This is in the book. This is an excerpt from the book, Black Men, Absolute Single Danger. There are certain cultural resolutions that should be non-negotiable as a people per, pursue beauty and power. I love this. Beauty and power. So it's not power. It is great. It absolutely has to be influenced by this book. Uh, in the 90s. So when we talk about beauty and power, he's talking about loving yourself. He's talking about when I was a kid, the, the word was black is beautiful. And it's not saying black is beautiful, everyone else is ugly. It's saying that for us to be who we need to be, we need to like us. We need to love us. And so we need to pursue the reality of black being beautiful to us. And that's going to help our expectations and aspirations which helps us to obtain power for ourselves. You know, it helps our continuity. It helps our unity. We have to think highly of who we are. Like, we are people worthy of having equality. We are people worthy of having a political power. We are police people are worthy of, of having some type of influence on government. It doesn't mean we have to have it excluding other people. We just need it for ourselves 
to pursue our interests. So I think this is what he means. At the top of such a list is the necessity for the members of a people to know and be themselves. African Americans or black people, all 30 million, must have a common and individual understanding of their history, traditions, accomplishments, and mistakes. Remember, I talked about that earlier. <laughs> this is cool. I, this is just, I'm definitely influenced by this book. I like it. I like it. So Dr. Haki, the expert, is, is showing that we need to be connected to who we are. That's the only way for us to move forward in the way that's positive for us. Uh, secondly, it's crucial that a people develop and listen first to its own experts, seers, wise women, and men. A people's worldview can be a major determinant, uh, a determinant in the construction of possibilities of the future. So, like I said, you got to love yourself. That tells you you should be ha- you're loving yourself and liking yourself impacts your aspirations for yourself. That's all this is saying. Thirdly, in the construction of a future, a people's need as clearly as possible to define and understand its enemies. Ooh. And see, that sounds like, ooh, white versus black. No. The, to be honest, the, the, the biggest enemy to black people are black people. How we treat each other, how we com- combat each other. See, if we were building our own civilizations and societies, we would immediately, we would immediately understand how uh, dangerous black people are for black civilization. And it, it doesn't, so enemies is a metaphor. It could be a literal enemy, people trying to hurt you, but it could be what are the key things, what are the natural impediments uh, to us moving forward? Is it education? Is it economics? Is it politics? It's probably all those things. Is it our historic problems? Is it drug addict addiction? Do we party too much? You know, all these things are, 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 are what a nation can do for itself. Finally, he says, a, people's, a people needs to develop its own workable worldview world of areas of human activity. And doing so, that people brings forth a leadership that is dedicated and willing to work incessantly to fulfill the constituents' wishes. African Americans at the national level do not have these cultural resolutions. Oh, wow. So now, it needs a workable worldview of human activities. Now, remember what we said earlier. There are working class and poor areas in New York, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Boston, all these, Chicago, all these turn-of-the-century industrialized cities with poor people working and slaving and poor neighborhoods, working-class neighborhoods, some of those neighborhoods consistently produce doctors, lawyers, and dentists, where other neighborhoods consist of other parts of other, or other people, other ethnic groups in the same exact neighborhoods produce policemen and tradesmen and policemen and factory workers. That is a difference in, in value system. That's a difference in culture. That's a difference, of, a difference in areas of values of human activity, as Dr. Heike is talking about right here. Um, and this is amazing. America in, in 1989 is where millions of homeless people are dismissed with their, with they are lazy and have, no, and have too many babies, where AIDS is the new mega death and its origin is falsely and maliciously placed in the African-American community. Mm. America is where most problems are treated by either taking drugs, 
overeating, exercising, having sex, uh, having sex, spending money, committing raw violence, reciting Sunday morning prayers, or staring at a hundred and ten channel, <laughs> hundred and ten channel television set. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Uh, wow! Congratulations to Dr. Heike on this or on this passage. It's in this is in 1989. He's he's already where I've become. Um, realizing that there's too much secularism, materialism, and ego based in today's society. Starting back in the 90s, with the you know, really the 90s. It's interesting because he says 1989. I have it as the 80s were basically the the 90s were basically the 80s on steroids. And so the 80s had all kind of little gadgets and little new things that uh, self-indulgent things that were coming about that only got become became more and more pronounced as technology grew. So as America is growing and it's having economic problems, it's becoming more alienated as well uh, with all, all people, not just race. Definitely he's touching on this in this passage. And so, and he talks about AIDS and how these issues, um, and I, I wonder what he thinks about COVID as far as the black community and the poverty issue and the, and the pre-existing conditions that made COVID so dangerous and detrimental to the black community and how those pre-existing conditions, of course, are poverty, poverty related. So, um, great point. This is only page four. <laughs> and we're not going to get a chance to go any further with Dr. Heike. Can't wait to talk more about his book. I see absolutely how much I've been influenced by this particular book. He talks about culture. He talks about it as a playbook. He talks about how value systems impact and how that's lacking and how there are consequences of that. And so I think Kwan's is a big, a big factor that can help that. And so um, now let's talk about the I wanted to do this today. I wanted to talk about the end goes of Soba, the seven days of Kwanzaa. Today is Wednesday, and I'm going with Ujama. Ujima. I get it confused. Ujima or Ujama. Collective work and responsibility. Uh, and this is a great book because it has quotes from great Americans, uh, African Americans, about this particular topic. So, so the the quotes from the great people like Jesse Jackson, Armstrong Williams, and Colonel uh, uh, Colin Powell will be about collective work and responsibility. Okay? So, Ujamaa, the third principle of Kwanzaa is symbolized by lighting the first candle, green candle, of the Kanara. Ujamaa is based on the notion that African Americans must work together to build and maintain our own communities and that we must make our sisters and brothers' problems our very own, and solve them together. Ujamaa is, is a call for cooperation, accountability, and compassion. Uh, great thing. It, it, I'm, I'm really, red flag, not red flag, but keep an eye on that red, that accountability stuff. One thing with black people, you'll, you'll find everyone always has some expectation, this is being a professional athlete, uh, there's always someone that knows what you're supposed to be doing for everyone else. There's always someone pointing the finger at what you're, they always can point, this is what y'all should be doing for us. Okay, that's not how you build anything. That's not, not how you become self-reliant. That's not how you become self-sufficient. That mentality is something that needs to be watched. So I, 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 I definitely understand and, and agree with the call for, 
cooperation and accountability and compassion, but be mindful of that word accountability. Don't let it, don't allow it to be usurped, usurped by people who are basically weak-minded. The first step to expect uh, positive change within our community is to engender a spirit of cooperation. Cooperation requires us to work together for the common good. A spirit of cooperation sets the stage for us to build joint partnerships focusing on measures that promote our community's interests and provide for our needs. As a second step, we must be willing to take full responsibility for ourselves, our families, and our communities. Finally, we must treat each other with compassion and respect. Remember what we talked about earlier, what is, what is the sign of the consequences of not building, uh, uh, what, what is the sign of black domination? They're very conscious of not being respected, but really are not really concerned about respecting you. That's definitely something that permeates the black community. So that's definitely, and I won't call it the black community, we'll call it black zombie nation. So um, I think this is, we got to be a stickler for passion, compassion, and respect. We have to respect each other. It can't be something where we're looking to make sure someone respects us. The idea that we have an obligation to be concerned about problems and welfare of each other is what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. referred to as the breath of life. According to Dr. King, an individual is not started living until he can rise above the narrow confines of his individualistic concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity. Don't want to forget, and, and uh, I don't want to leave that compassion and respect thing. Beautiful part about Dr. King. As a professional athlete, <laughs> that's one of the things that I've noticed. People being very conscious of if I respect them but not conscious of if they respect me. That's like one of the sticklers, and it's usually black people that do this. They come and they look at you. They see you before they see you before you see them. They Instead of saying, hey, how you doing, Clarence? Or, hey, hey, what's the hurt you put special? They'll stand there and wait for you to acknowledge them. That's black zombie. That's the essence of black domination. Those are people you don't want to be bothered with or have anything to do with. But anyway, so what does Jesse Owens have to say about Ujima, Cooperative Working Responsibility. Any black who, stri who strives to achieve in this country should think in terms of not only himself, but also how he can reach down and grab another black child and pull him to the top of the mountain where he is. This is what a gold medal does to you. Excellent. Uh, Adam Clayton Powell Jr., Black Power is Black Responsibility. I like this list of black people, notable black people that talk along these. This is now here's wow. This is exactly what I'm talking about. When I look at these black people that are talking about cooperative, collective work and responsibility, I see Republicans and Democrats. Jesse Owens would be more uh, conservative. Dorothy Hyde probably liberal. Uh, Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Democrat. Jesse Jackson Democrat. Armstrong Williams Republican. Carl Rowan. Uh, I don't know if he's a Republican, but more definitely not left-wing. Colin Powell is a Republican. So he did a very good job of getting the right of the excellent job of getting different types of black people, <laughs> which is my whole point. Uh, uh, we're black. We have to come together along those lines to move forward collectively. And so the, the writer, whoever did this book, uh, have to get the, uh, I think it's Rod Terry, Thank you, Mr. Terry, 
uh, made my points for me. But uh, I think we're at the end of the show. So I'm glad to have this opportunity to make my case for the need of a centralized culture. Uh, definitely done some Kwanzaa Seven Principles. We did one today. I love it. There are like 20 other people we could have done, and we'll talk about them if we have more time. But um, uh, uh, my plan was to make my case for the need of a centralized culture in the African American community and for the practicality of Kwanzaa being utilized as that tool. Uh, thank you for your time. Uh, I wish everyone a great holiday if I don't see you. I, I plan on talking to you before the holidays end, so, but, you know, just in case. Thanks again. Have a blessed week. Uh, have a great week. Uh, thanks. Your host, Clarence Jones. Take care.